1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Strain your eyes against the sky and find no trespass for 100 miles. The rubber peeled from your brake to rim and no sign of wings on southern wind. If the boss is calling and bills are due, but there'll be no chores until you're through. If your boots are east and west or in between on frozen rock or soggy green. If the birds are calling and smoke is due and there'll be no rest until you're through. If the treasure you seek is in the hunt, you've arrived at the foul front. One. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast. And after uh, we got a couple of uh, new, we got a new face with us today. We've got Ben back. I think he's decided he likes ducks again. And then uh, you've got myself uh, and Matt. So Hunter, we got a, we do have a guest to talk about today's topic with. Uh, we've got Hunter on. So Hunter, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey guys. So uh, my business is bigger than Hunters. Uh, I have a Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, another uh, YouTube. Uh, really, what our mission is, is about uh, educating, mentor, mentoring new hunters uh, through our social media po- posts, and then our YouTube as well. So, just trying to get uh, new hunters in the field is really what we're about. Sweet, that sounds pretty good. And uh, and Hunter had just oh, the what's your team, Hunter? Uh, me and Matt did the Huskers. Uh, yeah. Oh, the, hey, you know, I forget. I, like I said, I'm not in the Nebraska club, although my school is a complete dumpster fire right now at the University of Tennessee. I think we fired like everybody that's touching the ball. <laughs> like it's, you know, we 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 just hired the University of Central Florida. Like their entire athletics department just moved to Knoxville. So you know, we'll see what goes on. But anyways, all right. Well, you know, we've got a long topic. We got a long conversation, and what I'm what I think is going to end up being a long topic. So I'm going to hand it over. Uh, to Ben to kind of introduce what we're talking about today, and then we're going to roll from there. Ben. This conversation uh, was born, I think, in everyone's hearts um, at at least some point for me in the last uh, two or three years when I started running into leases as I was trying to get permission to hunt on on private properties, both uh, deer and and waterfowl, uh, specifically what we'll be talking about uh, this episode. Um, I 
you know, I spent some time in central Kansas where there's there's plenty of leasing going on down there through uh, some commercial outfits, you know, guides, etc. And um, but as I moved up to Lincoln, Nebraska, and I got closer to a larger, you know, Midwestern urban interface, uh, I really started running into the lease culture and getting a lot of instead of just no, you know, my cousin or my nephew hunts the place. I started getting more. No, it's uh, this this property's leased out or uh, that thing's leased out, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so I, I wanted to, I started thinking about it a lot more this year and wanted to bring it to the masses because I do have a lot of thoughts on it and my emotions have gone up and down, left and right, back and forth on how I feel about leases um, in, in, you know, the last couple of years. Specifically, uh, I've gotten a little bit more emotional about them this year. But I think I'm in a place now where I can, I've unpacked all of my feelings and, um, I can, I can start to really see and evaluate kind of how I feel about them. And, and I wanted to open that discussion up so that I could, I could start exercising some of that. So, so I will, I will say like, you know, for full disclosure, um, I, I've been a leaseholder for several years. So, you know, I've, I've, I've paid into leases, both waterfowl and deer for the past, um, I guess it's going on four years now. So, you know, I, it, as we're going through this conversation, everybody, I just kind of want you to know that like the audience, you know, even in, at Foulfront, we are, we're pretty, I'd say like, have, we come on different sides of this topic. You know, we, we, we both represent different positions on it in this conversation. So, you know, we're not, we're not like partisan one way or another on it when we look at this approach. So I just want to kind of bring that up. Uh, and, you know, for you guys too, I don't, Ben, I don't know if you knew that about me, you know, like we've talked about I my think, guiding, yeah. but you know, I've, I've been in this for a while. Before we talk to, you know, Matt and Hunter about, you know, what their experience with leases are just as like a disclaimer on where we all come from. Um, yeah, too. I, I mean, I hunted on several leases this year and I've benefited from leases and I've, uh, you know, I've been, you know, quote unquote, felt screwed by leases um, as well. But I feel like this conversation is much more nuanced and people probably when I just ask, you know, the question, are leases good for the future of hunting? Or are they bad for the future of hunting? Um, immediately, you will. S I, I feel like people make and jump to assumptions. Uh, about about how people feel about them, whether or not you've got one or not. Um, so this is not a black and white issue. This is very nuanced, a lot of gray. So Matt, uh, kind of give us what are you, what's your experience with uh, leases in the past? I I don't really have a ton of like hunting leases. I know we've we've done some leasing for farm ground, but uh, and I guess that comes with hunting rights in those particular cases, but I have hunted on a few actual hunting leases that a couple, you know, buddies or family members have, and that's about the extent of it. But like you said, I like that you said, you know, it's not a black and white issue. It's very, there's, there's a lot of things to unpack with this issue. Hunter, how about you, man? Um, so a little background, I actually grew up in Western Nebraska. Um, I, uh, we just had private permission spots, but the older I got, the more I I've heard. And, uh, if anybody's listening, you know, knows anything about Nebraska, the Platte river is kind of a, uh, hot spot, especially for leases. And the, the older I got, the more I saw 
ground that got leased up and got more expensive. Then I moved to college and after college, I started getting, uh, I got hunting down the Eastern side of the state and there's some pretty good, uh, um, uh, early season stuff around here. That's all public. And so I kind of ran that route, uh, for a year. I tried to lease up in the Eastern part towards the Missouri river. And then, uh, wasn't very good because of the river flooding last year, but then this year it was really, uh, dry. So <laughs> they did really well. So I plan on doing both of them next year. Cause I've got a buddy that's got some, uh, private pond kind of in the central part. So depending on how water flows, that's where I'm going to be. It's I'm going to bounce back and forth depending on how, how things go with the weather. Gotcha. <clears throat> All right, Alex, uh, we posed <laughs> a question in the group about whether or not, and I asked, can, go ahead and just read the actual question and then kind of give us some, uh, give us just the results of what people said. So on the on our Facebook group, we put up as or Ben put up as it stands right now in your area, our waterfowl lease is ultimately good or bad for the future of hunting. And this is answer as best you can in the poll and then let us hear your thoughts on the issue and then we're, we'll discuss them here. So out of that question, uh, overwhelmingly, people have, have basically said that it, they think it's bad for the future of hunting. So just the numbers we got, you know, we have 48 votes that said it was bad and we had eight votes that said it was good. And it's a pretty spirited conversation in the in the comments after that, you know. So people definitely, you know, just like everything in waterfowl hunting, it seems like there's a lot of passionate opinion about what people think this is and, you know, what if it's good or bad. And here, you know, it, it seems that the, the crowds would agree that it was overwhelmingly bad. Now, one thing I do want to point out, too, is that we had a lot of post reach with this and a lot of folks didn't vote on it one way or another, which leads me to think that just like many other issues, there's this middle ground, like this gray area of folks that either don't have a lot of experience with it or they kind of sit on the fence like we do on whether it's good or it's bad. So I think it's, you know, that's why this episode is going to be really impactful. I think. And I also wondered about the, the vocality of people who said, um, you know, hunting leases are, are good, right? Um, if they True. saw, you know, like, mm, maybe I, I'm not going to be that vocal about it, uh, as where the person who doesn't, uh, you know, think they're good, they're a little bit more, you know, passionate about it. Like, you know, been screwed by a hunting lease or, uh, yeah. don't have one. And it, it kind of, you know, the tragedy of the, of the commons, so to speak. Yeah. I, I you know, I think there probably are some people out there that, um, I, you know, just like a lot of things, I think there's people that have been burned by it are going to be pretty passionate about being burned. And then folks that have been doing it for a long time, you know, like myself, I've been on a lease for four years. I don't have any bad experiences, but I'm also not, you know, I don't feel like I need to engage, you know, with, with defending why I think it's good. Um, because it does introduce, you know, it does introduce a whole other angle to it. It's like, well, you can afford that. You know, what about, what about those of us that can't, you know, and I think that's, that's definitely an aspect of it too. So, um, yeah, I think that, I do wonder about the data skewing, which makes me think, or not, you know, data skewing, the, the vocality of the group. But that's where I think the poll, you know, the poll reach is very telling of sorts. You know, we said we had almost a thousand people see that poll uh, and we only we had less than 100 people actually vote one way or another on it. So, you know, I think, like I said, there's a there's a middle ground out there um, to discuss the silent majority, so to speak, the silent majority. Well, I think there's a lot of emotion that's kind of packed in the leases. And I think that, I think there's two ways to look about it. I think there's an idealistic view of it and then there's a realistic view. 
idealistic view wishes we all could go back to the 60s and 70s where we can hunt wherever we wanted all the time you know most people just let you in whenever but then there's just the realistic view that you know hunting is competitive and it has become more about money and it's like well am i gonna sit here and complain about it or am i gonna you know lease up the yeah. land that i want yeah. to hunt well, and you just brought up an excellent segue, you know, into our first big part of the topic here, which is, you know, it's about the money, you know, the economics of the leases and the farm, you know, the farm landscape has changed a lot. Now, being from East Tennessee, mountain country, um, you know, we don't do a whole lot of the same scale of farming that you guys do out there. So, Ben, I'll let you kind of jump into this first area of the big farming and the money and the economics of it. Yeah, and I, I would uh, defer... Um... Matt, go ahead and jump in here whenever I say something stupid. Um, you know, a lot of this is uh, just data driven and stuff that I found from you know USDA and um, talking to a couple buddies who who are uh, who are farmers. But you you know you're a little bit more versed in that, and I, I could sit here and, and spew out a, a bunch of uh, guys. How many how many notes do I have on this page here? I think you wrote for like an hour today on the yeah when's the book coming out ben yeah. <laughs> uh, well the number of farms declined by five thousand eight hundred. no um seriously folks he went on for a long time on the status so it's pretty good stuff all right so here's the here's like the takeaway right farm debt is up um something like 50 percent of all of the farms um in operation in america today are in debt um the, the second point is that, you know, small farms like organic and like regenerative farms, you know, people that are kind of uh, embracing this, you know, the small, uh, small farmer culture and being very diverse are doing fine. Um, and then big farms that, you know, the ones that make money and, and uh, run it, you know, through the scale of economics, uh, they can, they can weather uh, you know, lower crop prices and, and, uh, emergencies and bad economies, but the mid-sized regional farmer, um, you know, a good swath of what we would think of as a farmer, you know, something like 80 to a thousand acres is absolutely, um, being, you know, wiped out. And so you have the number of farms um, declining with the size of farms going up every single year. This has been the case since, you know, the 1970s. Um, interesting parallel that you made there, uh, Hunter, uh, with when, when you were talking about too bad, we can't all be like we were in the 70s or whatever. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the average farm size just uh, continues to increase. I can break it down into like, the different revenue classes. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like the rich are getting richer and the, the poor are getting poorer. And then there's that kind of that side niche, like where, you know, you become this organic or regenerative farmer, um, who's, you know, really working with what they got and diversifying and, and not using some traditional methods that's doing uh, pretty, pretty well, um, in, in some niche markets. But so, so I got two, you get two things on this. So one, uh, gr a great resource to well, hold on. The last thing I wanted, the last thing I wanted to say about that, and all that can be summed up with um, a, a, an anecdote from a, a farmer um, who was who said, "You know, I used to have six, seven, eight neighbors that we would do crop share stuff with, and you know, I could you know borrow this or borrow that, and 
now I have one neighbor. Um, and so that, I think that kind of tells that same story. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, my experience in hunting of Kansas, I, you know, one of the things I saw is the the generational farming has kind of gone away. Like you don't see people inheriting the family farm and continuing the business anymore. You know, so like some of these farmers, like they, when they start to age out of it, there's nobody, to, there's nobody in their family to leave it to. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing I'd say, if you really want to dig into some information that we won't get into here on the, on the farming um, is the pheasants forever and quail forever have a lot of resources on this stuff too, that talk about the farming because the, the large scale farming, the corporate farming has really impacted that upland habitat. And so they've done a lot of studies for that too, that by, by, you know, just by proxy also impact a lot of water farming. So if you want more information on this particular like farming scale phenomenon uh, and you want to learn more about it, then check out Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever because they, they have a lot on it. The thing that and I've last, seen... Oh, go ahead, Honor. Sorry. The, last, uh, the thing that I've seen quite a bit lately, uh, especially in my travels, is that a good example is like my wife's uh, grandpa. He'll be uh, 80-something. There's nobody to take up that farm. So what they're going to do is they're going to split it between three sisters. And the three sisters are going to lease it out to probably a local farmer. And so even though you know you go on... Uh, on x apps it might show that it's broke up between three or four different people that but it's still one farmer in that area that's probably doing all of that in that farm you know yeah uh, actually a, a pretty cool resource that i found as i was trying to um emphasize or excuse me <laughs> empathize and um understand you know what a farmer is going through as he makes these decisions uh, it was the Off the Husk podcast. Have you, you guys ever heard of this? No. no. Yeah, it's yeah, it's called Off the Off the Husk podcast. It's it's actually a pretty cool little podcast. Um, and uh, this is the you know I've only listened to I think two episodes, but from what I gather, they're you know they're a group of farmers from Minnesota, I think South Dakota too, who they talk about farming issues, and I really enjoyed. Uh, they got good audio quality. They're very witty, and they actually have like a really great sense of humor. Um, but yeah, they, uh, the episode I listened to was episode five, and uh, I found it to be a very good look into the other side of uh, the conversation for me. As you know, it's really hard for me to put myself into the farmer's shoes as a, uh, as most would call me a city slicker or a socialist, I guess now I'm a socialist. Um, <laughs> At least that's what uh, the poll says. Yeah, yeah. With, uh, you know, uh, I'm a city slicker with an appetite for, you know, conservation and, and I'm hungry for hunting access. Um, you know, I, I walked away from this episode with a better understanding that uh, can hopefully help me in my conservation efforts and my attitude in the future. So go give them a listen. It's called Off the Husk Podcast. Um, episode number five uh, is, is a, was a good one to start. And then you can see if you like it, especially if you're a farmer. Uh, they do. They talk about some cool stuff. So, um, Matt, uh, before I go into kind of like what the, uh, what those all those facts that I spouted off earlier uh, mean, um, at least to me, do, do you have any comments that you want to say? Yeah, we, I mean, we could do, honestly, we could do a whole podcast about just the changes in agriculture and how that affects, I mean, it'd be more, I mean, all kinds of wildlife, not just waterfowl or upland game or big game, but, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about leases today. Um, but part of something that should be mentioned with that is, as these farms get bigger and the equipment gets bigger, um, farming practices change, you're gonna, you might find yourself with less and less habitat because, you know, it's easier to farm the whole section rather than worry about hedgerows. So those get torn out, crop prices, 
property taxes, you know, you want to make the most of your resource, your land that you're paying taxes on. So those hedgerows, those waste areas, the grass, the weedy areas, those get torn out in favor of more areas for production. Um, so there's a lot less habitat available, a lot less places for people to go. So that right there is starting to stack up where, you know, you have more and more people that want to hunt, but less places to go. And that's kind of what it turns into the leasing issue. A good, uh, a good parallel to that too. It's just like with how, you know, uh, you tear up habitat. You're also tearing up access too, because where, you know, for hunters instance, right. Where his, uh, you know, those three different property holders, uh, landowners, it gets split up and on Onyx, it's, you know, it's three different separate properties, but it's got one farmer with one set of hunting rights. And does he really want to deal with three different hunters on those properties? Or, uh, if he, if he does lease it out or if he does offer permission, you know, uh, and then, uh, so, you know, it either turns into nobody gets access to it because there's either, you know, that it's too much of a liability for that larger entity to, you know, lease out the hunting rights or to allow people uh, to hunt on it. Or uh, one guy wins the jet, wins the lottery. Yeah, and right? I'm glad that you said liability there because I can't speak for other states, but as in Nebraska, if you give someone permission, you're protected from whatever, you know, that actually, are you going to, are you going to interject you, there, Ben? Yeah, yeah, I am. You, you, you say that, actually, though, but um, if there is a um, – I, I, I'm not a lawyer, okay? So, But let's say you say, yeah, go ahead, hunt my property, uh, Ben. You're good to go. But then you there's an open well, right, that you knowingly yeah. knew about, but you did not disclose that information to me, right? Um, actually, you can still be held liable for that. Now, if it was like, oh, they, okay. they fell off of a steep bank or whatever, it's kind of, come on, that's not going to hold its weight, you yeah. know. Gen generally speaking, you're protected. I can't remember the law or statute or whatever, but in Nebraska. But if you lease, I don't believe that protection exists. Now, that's Nebraska. I don't, I can't speak for any other states. No, I think you're correct there. But that's um, that's that, the person yeah, leasing out. Right. Yeah. If you accept, you know, money or, or et cetera, um, don't want to get into that conversation. But a lot of, but a lot of lease but agreements accept, though, have clauses and stipulations within them that also protect the landowner. So uh, what I have seen for folks that do yeah, leases yeah. is they have lawyers draft up the lease, uh, the lease. Agreement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be that, yeah. it'd be that. Even simple, then though. But, and once again, yeah, once again, not a lawyer, a live, a, a waiver of liability, actually only goes so far and there's plenty of instances there and so it's like then you run into these things where there's this extra stipulation of okay now i'm going to lease it and i'm also going to have to have an insurance i'm, I'm gonna have to have it included in my insurance plan or i mean that's why a lot of uh states that regulate um hunting outfitters require you to have an insurance right yep well, I mean, a lot of states that if you're, you know, any kind of outfitter, you, you have to figure out a way to do the insurance. I know when I was guiding, that was a big question that I had to go and answer was the insurance piece. So, uh, but anyways, yeah. I guess to... Okay, so back on track. Yeah, to, to bring it all back. You know, if this is good or if it's bad. 
So like, I think we should like start drilling into the heart of the matter, you know, like after we've got some facts and some figures here, like we kind of set the stage for, you know, there's a comp, there's an economic interest now there's, you know, big corporate farming has kind of created a, created an environment as such where people need to find the way to maximize the value for their property. So now like, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing for access? You know, like, let's open the question up. Like Ben, what do you think? Well, I, one, the first thing I want to say uh, is that I, you know, I wrote all that stuff and I didn't get to the heart of it. It's just like, hey, man, like the mid-sized farmer, more than likely who you're knocking on the door of, it's like, he's he's not doing all that great. Like, he's yeah, pinching pennies. He's worrying about bills. Like, might have had a <laughs> corn prices are down, et cetera. But um, I think a lot of us tend to think, um, oh, man, this guy's got 800 acres. Uh, look at him driving around his Ford F-350 2021. Like, why won't this guy give me hunting permission, you know? But it's it's that's not always the case, right? So um, so I, I feel that, right? And you got to, if you have a piece of land and you're not, uh, you're not a hunter, you're not interested in the hunting rights on it, why wouldn't you, you know, uh, maximize the commodity of your, of your land? <laughs> like, right. It just seems like it makes economic sense, especially when you're, when you're hurting and maybe you're not as, um, maybe you're not as connected to that land. Like Matt was, Matt was saying earlier, you know, farm and fence row to fence row. Um, but, but let's add this dynamic in too. People knock on your door. So maybe nobody gives it a thought. Like if you're a farmer, you've never given it a thought about leasing your land. More often than not, and I think, you know, companies like Onyx, you know, Google, like the digital, the digital era where you can look at land now and assess it, right? So, you know, back, and I, I learned this, I was on the kind of the cusp of this change when I was going up to Kansas to hunt. You know, when I first went up to Kansas in the first year, like Onyx was not as available as it was. And Google was okay but it didn't show property lines. So I had to go to the courthouse and get a property map. And I had to do a lot of scouting to figure out what areas were good to figure out what door to knock on, you know, to get permission to hunt it. Well, now, you know, on X. So if you're, a, if you're someone interested in leasing and you've got some cash, I would say that more today than ever before, the likelihood of knocking on that farmer's door and offering them money is much higher, especially if you've got a feature on your property that's going to draw a hunter's attention from a digital, you know, a, an overhead perspective. And so I think that that has also changed the lease culture too, because people that wouldn't have thought about monetizing the hunting rights now have people like literally handing it up on a silver platter to say, Hey, I'll give you a thousand dollars a season. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. 
Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, we, why wouldn't I? Is that a good transition, Matt? Yeah. To to day leasing? <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess we can talk about day leasing right away. You know, I don't... I know there's a few guides down in Kansas that do it. Uh, they like those those ponds, you know, Kansas goose hunt pond or Kansas pond goose hunting is a pretty big deal. Um, so I know there's outfitters that'll go in and they'll, you know, they'll offer $500 for a day or whatever. And then, you know, bring in however many guys and shoot it one day and then go on to another one. Um, there's, I mean, not as many people are doing it. Those guys are pretty innovative, honestly, but I mean, like like we've been saying, there's good and bad to it. If you're from the perspective of the person leasing, you can save some money, especially if you're scouting and you're seeing these birds a couple of days in a row, and you know you might have more likelihood to get access. Whereas, like some guy, oh, it's leased out for the whole year. Okay, well, what if I just lease it for a day? And you know, some of that's happening, or they'll sublease it, or you know, just lease it out for that day, or um, and and the farmers or the producers or whoever owns it are going to be more comfortable, more than likely, just, okay, they're going to be out here one day. How much damage can they do versus a whole season, you know? Because um, there, there are people that aren't respective of other people's property, even when they're paying for it. But uh, I, I think... I think it's more... You're more likely to get on a dailies, but you're also more likely... And there's very unique conditions that you need to have to be able to have a successful hunt on these properties. I mean, you get, you got to have them scouted out and know to a T otherwise you're just, cause you know, if you got a pond in Eastern Nebraska or something, you pay $500 to go hunt it might be good. Might be bad. You don't know, but that's why you, you've really got to scout out these daily potential locations, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But it I, I is felt like those were actually pretty common. Access. Um, I, I, you know, you said they were. You thought it was kind of innovative. I, I thought that was pretty common when I was down in in uh, Central Kansas. I, I feel like that was kind of the uh, you know the guide. They would you know get the scout, find the landowner, either ask uh, for permission to to do it, and then offer them you know x amount of dollars you know just for the day, or hey you know maybe the next two days things like that. I, I thought that was pretty common um, at least for the run and gun style, um, not so much where you've got like, Oh, I know I've got 10, 11 good properties that always produce uh, type of situation. Yeah. And see, that's what I'm saying is it's very location dependent. And, you know, I hunted central Kansas, maybe two or three days ever. So I'm not very well versed in that style, you know, growing up in Nebraska, hunting mainly Nebraska, I've never encountered that until the last few years. So, um, you yeah. would you would have more knowledge on that than I would. That, and what I found from the, from that type of thing that <laughs> I had a pretty like uh, it, it was kind of strange. I didn't know how I felt about it initially. Obviously, it really upset me. Uh, but I probably could have played my cards a little bit better. I knocked on a, a landowner's door when I was in Kansas, and uh, I said, "Hey, you know those geese? Uh, 
etc. Blah blah blah. I did my spiel and told him I'd you know break my back for him, um, etc. And he goes, "Oh no, I got a guy that um, if, uh, if if he wants to come hunt it, uh, a guide, excuse me, if he wants to come hunt it, because um, um, he's got geese on it, he'll pay me X amount of dollars per day. And then if somebody else uh, asks me to you know hunt, uh, I call him and, and he'll outbid the other guy." So I was I was doing the scouting for this guy. So this guy just waits for this farmer to call him. That's saying, "Hey, I had a guy come tell me that uh, he wanted to hunt some geese." He's like, "All right, well, we'll be over there tomorrow." And it's like I was, I was like, "Dang, I, I really could have uh, played that situation a little bit better." I think, um, but uh, just like hunting traffic north or south of, of that particular field or something. Um, but I, I I've got that pin. Um, that's a that's a special pin um, in my Onyx. So, so it's funny, wish, you know, that's... You, you talk about the day, you know, the, the daily is and, and let me, I'm going to put myself like in the perspective of a farmer for a second, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, I've got all this land. I have this resource. Somebody's knocked on my door. They've offered me something. So now I know that I have something of value that is marketable. It's actually to my benefit to, to, partner up with what I know to be like a respectable, respectable outfit um, that I know will take care of my land. You know, like I know the guy, I have a personal relationship with him. I know that he's probably going to bring people, but at the end of the day, I have a point of responsibility to assign if there's any damage done to my property. And so it's actually, you know, from that farmer's perspective, I could sit there and go, I'd much rather work with that outfitter that will one, pay me for the resource I have. And two, um, I, I know that I could trust the person versus somebody else that just knocks on my door and I don't know. You know, so that's kind of the devil's advocate there of like why I might like that, you know, a little bit better, especially if you got a long standing relationship with that outfitter and uh, they like working with you and the price seems fair. Um, you know, why would you not do that if you're a farmer? I think that probably works a little more in like more consistent areas, maybe like central Kansas, whereas like in eastern Nebraska, it's just it's not consistent enough. And that's why it has become a a big issue yet in Nebraska because it Nebraska tends to be inconsistent. I mean, I know, you know, I went snow goose hunting on the, the Del Marva. That's a term I've learned by the way, in the last um, couple of weeks, the Delaware, Maryland, Virginia peninsula, which, you know, if you look at it on a map, that's what it is. Like the entire state of Delaware is there, but Maryland and Virginia all have land on it. And so it surprise, surprise, it's a big snow goose flyway. Um, no idea, but that, that daily, you know, the, the farm lease relationship, they have some inconsistencies, but it's such a small area that it's in the outfitter's interest to lock up so many options because they know it'll pay off. And and by the way, like some of the outfitters, they understand the farmer's practices. Uh, like they know that this farmer's like better, better at it than this one. And so there's more waste grain on this field than there is on this other one. And they, and they, they won the leases like that. It's, it's really, it, it blew my mind. I had no idea because it's so new, but um, you know, I think the consistency is a gamble. And if you're an outfit though, like how much is that guy going to charge you? You know, does the farmer, how does a farmer bill the outfitter? You know, I think that'd be, is it by the season, by the day um, when the birds just show up? All right. All right. So I think we've talked this through. Uh, we everybody knows what a lease is now, in case they didn't know before. Um, and but I think we've, we've, we've talked. We've had some good talking points. And back to Ben's and, novel. We're going back to the novel that Ben's <laughs> written. 
No. It was the best of times, twas the worst of times. <laughs> Waterfowl stamp the, sales were high. The, the, the tale of, of two duck hunters, right? Um, well, land access was low. Yes. Um, well, I mean, that great. Uh, it's not It's not a good segue if I point out that it was a great segue, right? So <laughs> why does any of this matter? Why did I ask if they're good or bad for hunting? And, and, and uh, for me, I will say that uh, I, I subscribe, ascribe, excuse me, to the ideology that um, in order for my daughter's kids to be able to, to hunt in, in North America, um, right now we need to flip the page, turn the scripts on um, the decline of hunting um, as, it, as it were, both through um, essentially hunting population increase equals hunting revenue increase, right? Um, so the more hunters we get, the more advocacy we have, the more dollars are being put back into um, funding hunting, which is, um, hey, guess what? I guess I'm a socialist because that's a socialist program. Um, but hold on, Matt. I see now- you want to jump in here. Hold on. All right. Now you can go. Go ahead. <laughs> the thing is, that's a double-edged sword because as you get more hunters, more people interested in it, sure, you get more money, but – where are those people going to go? And that's that's the main point of this issue, I believe. The leasing, the public land, they have to have snow. And if because if you're not gonna you're not gonna want to keep hunting if you keep going out and you're getting crowded out by tons of people, or there's just no game out there, or I mean, all the issues that arise when there's highly high density of hunters in the same area, you know that. So it it is, and that's why. Um, access is such an important issue to the future of hunting. And that leads us, I guess, back to this whole leasing agreement or it's like we whatever debate. This. It's like we rehearsed <laughs> it. My goodness. So, right. We have to define, we have to define access and in the definition of access. Um, yeah. Leasing plays an important part because we've got X amount of public land, right? Uh, that you can go to. And then that public land varies on how good it is and how valuable it actually is in terms of hunt days and what capacity, how many hunters it can, it can hold and how well um, it's managed by the state or whichever entity with the money that, you know, we were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, more acres doesn't necessarily mean better access. Um, and another thing that a lot of people don't, don't realize they, you know, what Nebraska has like what two or three percent public lands that you can hunt on? Um, that's about correct, right, Matt? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and do you know where one of the lowest 80, in the country? <laughs> you know where eighty-five percent of that land is next to Colorado. It's like four East hours Colorado. away from me, and so yeah, <laughs> it's like four <laughs> hours away from me at, at the minimum, and so like you have to start not looking at it just by the numbers, but also by like conditional variables. Right. So like, um, it's not access to me if it's not within 45 minutes of my house. And a lot of people I think they said 40, I can't remember the study, but I've heard really smart people talk and I need to find it. I've heard smart people talk about like people, um, 
if they don't have somewhere within 45 minutes of their house, the percent that they hunt drastically decreases. Um, Hey, I will say that is, that is a, that is absolutely true for me. Um, You know, like I have to look at hunting and I, I I think that I will probably fall in the medium of people that, that hunt. So like I work, I work five days a week, most weeks, sometimes more. I have average hours, you know, by the time it comes to my weekend, you know, I've got a wife, I have family responsibilities, cat, I can't get a couple cats, you know, Hey, I am working on a dog, but Hey, we'll get that's a separate subject. Um, but you know, if I can't go, if I can't go hunt and let's, let's take ducks, for example, if I can't go and, and spend four or five hours on a Saturday morning and be back by a reasonable point in time on Saturday to like spend with my family, like I, I'm not going to go do it. Um, and so I actually like when I'm moving place to place in the military, I, uh, I actually, I look at where I'm going to live and what the location viability for my hobbies are, because otherwise I I can't afford the time at that point, I'm better off taking whatever money and just going on one trip or two trips a season versus utilizing an access, you know, utilizing a resource frequently. And, And so that does play a part for me. The 40 minutes is pretty accurate. You know, now I will say I will go out to an hour and a half, like in Texas, I was driving an hour and a half each way to the lake, but it was great. I mean, like I could go down there and I could do really well and come back and it was a good time, but I'm not, I'll tell you this in Virginia, I'm not driving an hour and a half to go duck hunt. <laughs> it's not worth my time. Um, I, I need to be somewhere closer. So and, I think the, the 40 minutes an argument, back. an argument against that would be is like, well, you're, we just need better hunters, not uh, more hunters. Right. Like, sure. We just you know need what? Better hunters that have a higher ROI where like one hunter spends just as much as four hunters. You know what? I want to find, I want to hunt with a guy that figures out a way to make it cold up North and birds migrate. Because just the, you know, like that guy can hunt with me. So if he's better then he welcome to my blind anytime. Well, all we got to do is unplug the heated ponds. Yeah. I still blame you guys in Nebraska for those heated ponds. So, oh gosh, <laughs> anyways, but, no, uh, 20 minutes is accurate, Ben. But <laughs> the sad part is talking about this issue. I don't think, I think I have one spot that's less than 45 minutes that I hunt. Other than that, all of my spots are over 45 minutes. Yeah. Yep. And like, you know, for you, right. You made that decision. That's kind of like your lifestyle. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a pretty big hurdle to cross. And, you know, I think we kind of, we owe it to, I don't know what I'm saying, but the reason, the reason, the reason I do that, you know, it as well as I do is the, the population centers, uh, yeah, you can hunt around your population center, but there's a lot of people. And if you can get away from that, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's, it gets a little sporty around those urban interfaces. So, yeah, I, you know, I think that, and this is where, you know, and then you talk about population centers, like what's least, you know, what becomes least is usually like if you take a population center and work your way out, you know, you'll see like it's, it's least, there's a lot of leases around bigger cities, you know, working you know, further and further away until you get to like Nebraska and your public land is like way out near uh, Wyoming and Colorado, you know, for, uh, in Texas, it was the same way, you know, Texas loves to, I love going to the Texas parks and wildlife. Cause they're like, Oh, we've got over 2 million acres of public land. <laughs> yeah. All of it is like out big on the next. Yeah. It's in big Ben and it's out on like the Mexico border, which is by the way, like six hours away from the closest major Texas city, which is by the way, awesome bird hunting. Oh, I'm sure it is. Hunting. I mean, um, <laughs> So, like, why does any of that matter, um, right? Coming back to it, 
is that there's a t- there's only X amount of public land. Nice sidetrack, guys. That was like 10 minutes. Our listeners will never get back in their lives. Um, so there's only X amount of public land. And there's, okay. a ton of, there's a ton of private land. And birds, deer, varmint, they don't care if it's public or private. Like, it's all public to them. to them. Yeah, it's all public to them. Um, and so, so if they say... I Oh, what? Oh, is it, I guess is I'll just start this off here. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off there, Ben. We're gonna we're gonna get to the crux of this good versus bad here. So there's there's a limited amount of public land, so people turn to private to hunt. Back in the '60s, '70s, access was a lot better. Would you agree with that? You could go up, you could knock on door. Hey, can I go? You know, jump your you know run through your ditch for pheasants or go jump. A, ducks on your pond or whatever go hunt there whatever that has changed with the as leasing becomes more and more popular so sure those people who are leasing or people going on those guided hunts that happen to you know be the ones leasing it out they get an opportunity to hunt but the people who don't are those people who don't have the money they can't afford to go out on a lease or buy that you know so then they're forced to hunt public so I guess that that would be one of the main arguments for leasing being bad. Is you're pricing people out of hunting land and already cutting off a limited resource in places to hunt. Yeah, then then uh so like the counter argument to that would be like um well what if the you know paying for that access is the only way that landowner is going to allow access, right? Because um, for whatever reason, they said, nope, not letting people just walk on here because it's an issue. Um, people trespass, they leave their beer cans, whatever the issue might, you know, they don't like people, you know, permission style. And so now they're like, however, this person is willing to pay me $500. And so now I will gladly let them hunt my uh hunt you know my private property and so then you're saying hey there's a win right uh that's 20 40 80 more acres that someone can hunt whether it's one person or two people right um which kind of goes back to to i think how we do the calculus on access right um personally i'm a big fan of the you know it's the number of acres that an individual hunter uh has access to hunt within a you know in in a perfect world we'd have all these different variables right where like ben's would be 43 miles mats would be you know 110 and hunters would be 350 miles right and you could tailor all that in so that we knew the you know <laughs> average average you know we knew ben's number of acres that he has access to hunt on within his own range but right so for now we could just say like oh 45 miles um and so I say that because a lot of people would argue, you know, you know, like we already talked about, um, there's all this, all this land that somebody can hunt. So that's, that's access. I can't access that though. You know what I mean? And then you get into like hunter use days. And so knowing that average number, um, would be a very good key performance indicator for access. That's so I think, 
I think here's another, what I would say is a, a con, if you will, a bad part of leasing is a lot of leases, like when farmers put their, or farmers property owners put their land up for lease, a lot of it gets immediately bound up in some kind of hunting club, you know? So like I, that's prominent in the Southeast, um, you know, where a hunting club is, will, will grab it. Same in Texas, it was that way. And and then the, the issue with that is some of those hunting clubs, you would think like, okay, I'll go and look at the hunting club and then get access that way. You know, I'll join the club, which does have benefits, but they have a tendency sometimes to get very fraternal. You know, a club doesn't have to let everybody in that they want. Um, they can control numbers. And so I, you know, I've been shopping around, for example, the state that I'm about to move to this next summer, I've been shopping around and a lot of the land that is leasable down there has been bound up in a hunting club that I, I can't join. Like, I, I just don't, I don't have the resources to join. I, I don't live there. And so now what? <laughs> you know, I'm back to square one with my access. So I think that that's a, a bad part too of, of leasing. Yeah. And Ben, just to add on, uh, I'm going to counter your counterpoint a by counter saying counter. a counter counter, counter squared, whatever. So your, your argument to the countering of at least someone gets to hunt that, what about the guy that had permission on that and then here comes the guy with mr Moneybags. he's like hey i'll give you a five hundred thousand five thousand dollars to hunt this property and now that guy that had it for nothing because he can't afford a lease he's out a spot to hunt so it's it's a net zero yeah right. or and loss even yeah i and i i totally agree with you on, on that respect too that's happened to me <laughs> as we all know <laughs> I've, I've, From, uh, I have something to add whatever. on to that too because some, something that I found that's like pretty pertinent that I've seen a lot is especially like uh, Nebraska obviously is a pretty big uh, agricultural goose hunting state and you get you know two or three groups in an area that's been hunting the same fields and if you can get the two or three groups together to be able to be respectful and hunt together it works out but if you get one group that just doesn't play nice, then you get one of the groups that just start throwing money together, start leasing up some of those fields that are pretty consistent. Next thing you know, you know, you got a lot of those fields that just either A, get leased up and they only hunt it once or twice a year and then you're just kind of out. Yeah, I've seen those wars happen. Yeah, well, it's just competitive investing stuff. in, you know, keeping those other guys out to be able to have for yourself. Yeah. Hunter, you want to talk a little bit about that competitive edge point that you were talking about? Yeah. So you get those guys that obviously are very invested in the hunting. I think there's a wide spectrum of, you know, somebody that's, you know, like Matt that hunts 60 days a year. And then you get a guy that goes out three to five days a year. Um, you know, the guy that's going out 60 is willing to invest a lot of time, money, and uh, um, cash into it. So take a, take a guy that uh, is a local guy that has relationships all over, you know, his county or as a farmer. I, I have that kind of experience with a buddy of mine. And then, you know, you get a, a, a young guy like Matt, you know, single and out in the wild, you know, scouting all the time. But you think about a guy that only goes three to five times a year that, yeah, he may not be able to have uh, the time or the relationships, but he can, you know, walk in there with some extra income because he may, uh, you know, amass that over a time period and 
um, be able to use that as his resource and able to get into a successful hunting establishment or land, private land. Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing, too, is uh, I know one of the comments uh, by my buddy Clayton, uh, he was like one of the first guys to comment on the poll. You know, he talked about how everybody everybody hates uh, in central Kansas the, the guides that, you know, come in and take their spot from, out from underneath of them, right, through leasing and, and whatnot. But then everybody slowly, um, you know, in an arms race, essentially, becomes a guide service right the, the more invested you get into it at some point you like look at it and you're like oh i am throwing a lot of money down i could start taking paid clients to offset that um and i i know several good buddies that they they've done that they did it for other different reasons too but um of course <laughs> hey alex what's up oh uh, um, i mean that, that cracks i mean that cracks into a hole so yeah there's that I mean, the, well, the, okay. What do you, I guess what he's getting at is like uh, Dustin. Uh, actually, funny story. Dun, Dustin's actually a mutual friend of ours. He hunted with uh, uh, my group a couple times, and uh, you know, it's like I said, he's willing to lease up land in order to keep other people out. And then, of course, if you get enough successful hunts and bring people in, you start charging them a little cash. And next thing you know, it just takes off, and you start leasing more land. Kind of was getting at. Yep. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I understand that, but like we've, you know, Ben and I have had spirited conversations about the guiding thing for a long time. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation. I, I feel like everybody starts painting me as like a socialist and, and I, you know what? I think this is a great pullover to talk about socialism. Ben, what uh, what, what's that strange flag that you have in the background that's red with these stars on it? It's really, yeah. is, that, is that a sickle and hammer back there? Wow. No, it's an American flag. It's an American I'm flag. I'm surprised it's not a, a Husker flag, and you know, I didn't, I didn't believe for it, but I sweated over following it. Scott Frost <laughs> well, into the abyss. So let's. So let me. Let me. <laughs> here's, here's what Moose, I. Do. Moose has diamond, and he's holding Frost <laughs> to the moon. So I'll I'll add in. Here's here's what I think is a good thing about leases. You know, here's here's a here's a positive that leasing brings to it. What I've seen um, leaseholders, you know, are folks that have a lot, a lot of land they're leasing. They tend to have um, a lot of ownership over that wildlife in the sense of like responsible management of the wildlife, uh, making sure that they, they get time to rest. And then the other part, too, is a lot of times leaseholders are the ones that are turning in like poachers. You know, like I, I see more leaseholders turning in like poachers than I see like trespassing. Um, and I've talked with a lot of the people that I have leased from. And they're like, we don't mind, you know, like the trespassing is one thing, but like what really upsets us is the poaching. And, and, and so I think that there is some stewardship that comes along with the leaseholders for the resource that does by proxy benefit everybody around it too, um, because of now, it. Now, let me counter that. A counter counter? I want to I, I preface this by saying I in no way endorse poaching. Poachers are absolutely abhorrent people, but... Is that case of poaching does because there's lack of access, does that lead to an increase of poaching because those people, or is it just a case of laziness like road hunting? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like if, if those people had more that. access to hunt, would they poach or would they go to those areas and hunt? 
a great insight into that, Matt, is the Big Honker podcast. Uh, they've interviewed the the Prince of Poachers several times, right? Now, there's a, there's a lot of other things going on with, with that man's head and with why he poached, because it was kind of like a big, big game to him, right? But the root of this uh, little poaching ring that's down there around the King Ranch in, in Central Texas was that this used to be public access. My great-granddaddy and his daddy and whatnot, that's where we all hunted deer. You know what I mean? Who are they to come in here with all their money and put fences up and keep me out of huge swaths of land, right? So that that's kind of like the mentality. I, I feel that, that that's what you just said, Matt. And Yeah, but there's a difference between poaching and trespassing. So a lot of times I see those people get nailed for trespassing, well, not poaching. Trespassing. Like, if you're trespassing and you shoot a... An, uh, a public resource on someone's land that's that's poaching okay so here's a good example of what matt's kind of getting at so a buddy of mine actually farms he's got a piece of land that we planted a field this year what we're planning on doing is cultivating more pheasant habitat planting milo doing the whole number there's a pond there it's basically perfect habitat for pheasants and then we're going to be planting pheasants ben obviously you're more than welcome you can that's why we had her on yeah, I figured. <laughs> no, so uh um, won't invite me anywhere. In that in that scenario, there's fields surrounding it. And you know, if let's be honest, people in eastern Nebraska get a, a whiff of pheasants being around. Next thing you know, they're gonna be driving the roads around that area looking for them, popping out and shooting them. Just because there's obviously like that Nebraska used to be a great pheasant state. Now if they know it's there, you know, they try to obviously take up that resource or try to. Yep. Yep. Um, so how did that go for your counterpoint there? Do you have a counterpoint for Matt's counterpoint, Alex? Like a counter counter. Are we on the third tier now? Yes. You know, I still, I still think that, yeah, well you have, you have some of that, you know, like, which I'll call like some residual resentment, you know, over land being leased out from under them and, and some poaching, um, you know, by and large, though, I would say that the habitat, like the like, so since that since that resource has now been commoditized or monetized in some way over that land, you know, like this is the value. Like, there's been a value now assigned because of the wildlife that's here. There is now a level of care that is put to it, uh, and a, you know that that's managed at a much closer level than we'll say public. Because I'll tell you, like the public land that I've been around in places like. Um, you know, in the Southeast, you know, so I look at the Southeast and, and they're, you know, generally speaking, their public wildlife management, is not great. Um, it gets absolutely crushed. You know, like people go and like sport poach on it just because they can't, you know, like if it flies, it dies. If it, if it's brown, it's down. You know, like I've, I've, I've actually like heard this in the auto zone. Like people are like, and so in the, in the public sphere, you just see this decimation of this resource where sometimes you look at the leasing and it's like, well, there is some poaching because it has been commoditized as being more closely managed. That's where the quality is now. Now there's an argument to say, well, if it was all opened up to public, would you have the same problem? And I'll say, no, there's a lot of people out there that, that will exploit until it's gone. You know, like they'll run it completely into the ground and leasing to a certain extent does prevent that. If anything, those people are leasing enough land where there's enough of it that's like held around like habitat wise and they're resting it even with the occasional poach they have a they have a healthy population of whatever 
you know, that's not being harassed to the same extent that it would be if it was public. And I, I see. And your argument is, is that land that is leased, um, the people that lease that land are better vanguards of the habitat. Absolutely. The they are because they've got a financial interest in it now, you know, and, and so they're, they're tied, you know, financially into it and they're going to, they're going to manage it as such. And, and that goes for waterfowl, deer, you know, everything else. Like I've, I've seen that, you know, or I've, I've, I've witnessed it, which is, you know, I think that if you look at places like Utah, or if you look at some States like Nevada that have just a plethora of public land, then that equation may not work as well. Right. But if you look in places that are densely populated, like Georgia or Tennessee uh, that don't have, you know, they may have big swaths of public land. I, I personally have only ever witnessed like complete decimation of those things. Like there is no quality deer hunting really on Georgia public land outside the occasional nice sized buck that someone kills. Yeah. I mean, but it comes off of leases all the time, you know, like out, the, out of leases. Uh, you the get, hunting you, public has definitely disproved you um, in at least three different videos, but I'm just, Hey, there's an interesting, uh, seek one. Oh, seek one. Yeah. One, that guy, he's a superhero killing people's <laughs> deer in their backyards and he's ripped. You know, talk about like fighting people. I would not fight Seek One. I don't know who this person is. So, who who's a YouTuber you would fight, Ben? Um, I'd fight you, Matt, Matt. from High Prairie Sportsman. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Oak from Virginia Outdoors. Oh yeah, I'd fight Thomas. I already said that. Uh, so I, I guess I would put that into a positive, you know, like to say like they're, they're the Vanguard, the resource protection. Yeah. And it bleeds over into public land that's around. Okay. Um, so I'll counter, I'll counter that one again. Counter, 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 four count, whatever. We need a counter counter. Anyways. <laughs> I'm getting a beer up for that one. Hold on. <laughs> Go ahead. Let me hear your counter there, Matt. Okay. Would someone who just simply asked permission, no, no financial interest. They just want to keep the permission. They want to, you know, keep the landowner happy. And which a lot of people that just get permission do, you know, they, they don't want to, you don't want to upset your landowner. You want to kind of watch the property, turn in poachers and everything else. Once they have that same vested interest. Yeah, they would. But I think there's a, and, oh, go ahead. The, I mean, I don't. I don't think that automatically guarantees that you're more likely to protect those areas. I mean, how many? I, and I don't want to get into what about isms here, but how many stories have you heard of guide services driving trucks through you know muddy wheat fields or corn stubble and just rutting it up? Or I mean, there's there's all kinds of different scenarios, and you could say the same thing about poachers too. But I don't. I don't think that just because they have a monetary interest in that it it's any greater than the person who just asked permission and doesn't want to lose those hunting rights no i'll tell you like if they're if you're a guide service so if you're a guide service and you're rutting up fields and you're losing access to take your clients out to it's actually impacting your bottom line now so it's like okay um, there are guide services we've we've gone micro guys we've gone micro we've gone into uh you just went and got a beer a very anyway. specific actually it's an, it well should we talk should we take a, a second to um, talk Guess about our drinks. One of oh. our new, um, one of my new sponsors. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Budweiser Zero. 
Oh, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> mine is a Budweiser or Bud Light Seltzer Lemonade. Ooh, so, what are, you, what are you drinking over there, Matt? You have a your 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 usual bourbon and Coke. Di no dihydrogen monoxide today. Oh, okay. Look at you being fancy. Truly H2O. lemon iced tea. Oh God, guys, uh, I'm gonna have to cut this portion of the episode out because we just lost credibility of uh, from the listenership. We have a guy drinking a non-alcoholic beer, um, a, a bigger guy drinking. <laughs> um, a Bud Light lemonade or something. Matt drinking what protein powder? I don't know. It's water. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Tried to dress it up. Dihydrogen oxide H two O. Dihydrogen wow. monoxide. Come on, man. Ooh. I'm actually upset. And then, uh, and then Hunter's drinking a Truly. Yeah, this is a socialist. Uh, oh wait, wait, wait! Uh, hold on. Whoa, no! I have a, I have a bourbon and soda down. right here. Oh, hey, hold on, guys! I, I really thought about this a lot since, like, I've been called like a liberal and a communist, a socialist. <laughs> um, and, um, I, I, I wanted to explain how this is. This is something that kind of bugs me. I'm not those things. Well, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a little socialist, right? As we all are, because right, exactly. That's what any commie would say. <laughs> um, well, guys, like, w there is nothing more socialist than the North American conservation model. That is socialism. Uh, you, you know, I I think that. So, well, here that's the thing, though. Is is everybody is, okay? So, right. We need to, I would like for our listeners to, anybody who's like thinking I'm a communist right now, just like we have some socialist um, programs, right? Is Matt dipping out? Oh, no. no. We have some I'm socialist sorry. programs because uh, when the first caveman met the second caveman and they're like, hey, we should move our caves closer together so that we don't get eaten by that saber-toothed tiger. And they started pooling resources and then like made some, like pacts, like I'm not gonna touch your cave woman. You don't touch my cave woman. Okay, there's a little, you know, um, etc. Like once we like entered into an agreement with other people about a shared resource, we don't just get to do what we want. Specifically, our cave women. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I, that was a terrible example, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, anyways, I just, I guys, like socialism is not communism and yes there are really terrible examples of socialism out in the world but everybody pitching in and pulling in and doing some like socialist things just go look up the definition of these things and don't like don't bite into uh polarized politics um rhetoric that wants you to I just feel like it's a very bad understanding and like anyways, let's get back to Lisa. No, 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 hold on. Nature does not do good in a completely capitalist society. Well, so so to get after what Hunter was saying, and this will lead back to the leasing, Matt. I know we're, we're we're drifting there. You know, so like there's the ideal, there's the idealism, <laughs> right? The idealism is that we would have like the resources is unlimited and right. we could go out and freely do what we want. You know, the the, the really the issue though is is that it's not, you know, and 
I, I have I have lived in so many different states now, and I've watched the, how they've managed land. You know, I've seen lands that are predominantly, you know, predominantly public with good regulations, with very little leasing. I've seen lands that are predominantly private with some leasing, um, and, and then everything in between. And, and I could say that, like, you know, our natural resources, waterfowling. You know, you want to talk about regulations like waterfowl and the wild turkey have benefited so much from shared regulating to the point where we can actually do the hobby now. You know, we, and Ben, you and I, we did an episode a ways back on, you know, the Lacey Act and things like that, or I think maybe you did it. You know, th- those are huge success stories of where good regulation makes sense. And leasing plays a part in this too, you know? And I, and I think that there's, there's a role for it there with the habitat management and, um, and everything else. And, and, you know, when you do have a financial stake, you know, so Matt, you talked about this to someone with a financial stake, uh, versus somebody that gets permission to have a different interest or, you know, more so. I, I would say here's the deal. Finances cut the bonds of trust and like social development. So like if I came to Nebraska right now, nobody knows me. You know, I show up and I'm based at, you know, I, I get based in Omaha and I'm looking for a place to hunt. If I demonstrate that I have a financial willingness, you know, it, people will understand that, you know, versus I don't have a year and a half to build a relationship for that same trust to be there. So, you know, I think the finances will speed up the relationship building because there's this like mutual sacrifice that's being, or there's a sacrifice being made. Uh, where in your case, like, no, I think if, if I were a local, if I lived there for a long time and I asked for permission, I would have just as vested interest as a leaseholder, right? It's just a quicker way to establish that ownership, if you will, of the resource. Yeah. And I, I don't even think it's about being local. I think if if you're a true outdoorsman, a true sportsman, you want to, you know, you want to respect the land, whether it be your own, if you own land, the public land, or someone's land you got permission on. It doesn't, I don't, it's not about the relationship with the, like the farmers or the ranchers or anything, although that goes a long ways as well. But if I go up and talk to some random farmer never met him before in my life and he gives me permission i'm still going to respect his property just as much as you know, does, my neighbor right the road but you don't get a merit badge that says you're a true outdoorsman and respect the land because there's people out there that won't you know like if we all wore a sign uh, yeah then sure i would agree with you you know and i think i i would but unfortunately if i'm the land if i'm the landowner i don't know you know like i don't know like if someone comes and knocks on my door and says hey i want permission on your land and I don't know them and I don't have a relationship with their family, you know, or whatever the case where I have some tie into understanding who they are. But if I, if I come up and I say, Hey, I'm going to give you $500 to be able to hunt this for the season or a thousand or whatever it's worth. Then I, I immediately go, okay, this person is like willing to stake something on this. And there's some terms we can agree on whether I know you or not. Now, maybe I've got some faith in humanity and I look at the guy that asked for permission and I've benefited from this. And I've taken care of their land, but those people have been burned before. I mean, Ben, I don't know about you, but I've had to go, I've had to jump through some hoops with landowners before because they've been burned by people that abuse their resource because they weren't great outdoorsmen or stewards of the resource, you know? So the money does kind of, it it does make for a medium. Here's an interesting, uh, I don't don't know if you guys saw this, but we had one of our listeners, Dan, um, who, who he's from Alberta. Right. And I kind of wanted to read his response. Um, you know that I'd I'd asked him um, to kind of explain further what his uh, his take on it is, and so he said, "Well, one, he about an hour before we started recording is when he actually responded. Uh, you know, hopefully I'm not too late to comment on this." He said, "You know, as you are aware, here in Alberta, 
actually pretty much everywhere in Canada, it is illegal to have slash own a hunting lease. The idea was that eventually only the rich would be able to afford a lease, leaving the everyday working man with nowhere to hunt. With this ideology, uh, everyone rich or poor has the same and equal opportunities to a natural resource like ducks, geese, deer, moose, elk, uh, bighorn sheep, etc. So uh, for years there have been many people who have tried to introduce paid hunting uh, leasing into Alberta. However, it's always been opposed by most hunting, fishing, and conservation groups. And he states that he's a member of one of Alberta's largest hunting and fishing and conservation organizations um, who has about 20% of uh, the, the hunters and anglers of, of Alberta um, as members. And he said that they always have a position of keeping paid hunting out of Alberta. So for as long as he can see it, it'll be a tough battle for anyone to get paid hunting, you know, legalized in Alberta. He goes on to say that, uh, you know, when he references paid hunting, that is in reference to the transfer of money, material objects, services, reward, or personal gain for the access uh, to hunt a specific property. He says, you know, as a hunter, his thoughts are, why would anyone have the right to access and harvest wildlife, which is technically owned by everyone over anyone else, regardless of, of land ownership. And, and now the opposition to that is by, you know, some landowners which believe that since they own the land, they should have the right to charge for access to their land. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can just, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, that doesn't mean that you can just go hunt wherever you want in Alberta. You still got to get permission, right? Um, but they've, the you know, the government has taken away you the ability for you to monetize that hunting access. And he says, um, you know, he himself is a landowner and he would love to make money or gain some sort of reward for allowing others to access his property. But honestly, he thinks that if that ever did happen, it would be the end to hunting as they know it there in Western Canada. So even as a landowner, he is against paid hunting in Alberta, uh, which kind of leads me to like an interesting um, point, right? So to boil everything down that he just said is, is that you can't have a lease. You can't pay somebody trade services, etc., cetera, um, uh, and whatnot. So it kind of takes away the entire... Um, monetary initiative for you to allow someone to hunting. Obviously, there's still going to be landowners that say, no, you cannot hunt. But now the ones that don't, you know, wouldn't mind um, you hunting there, it's simply a permission and a preference thing. Not so much a money thing. And it seems to fare out pretty well. I'd be interested to see, you know, hear some responses about um, other people's, you know, ideas to that. I mean, that is, you know... <laughs> It's it's interesting, and I'm glad I'm glad that it works. Um, and I could see, you know, where you've got a you've got a group that's totally bought into it, right? So, like, if we did that in in Flyway, you know, if that happened in Nebraska, like in the Central Flyway, if that's the way that it went, um, you know, maybe it works. And and I think that because you have a you have a totality, but we don't know that it. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I don't personally know that it works, other than like the anecdotal fact that. People love hunting up in Canada, and so clearly, you know, it must that's, work. But I haven't like that's Alberta versus Manitoba right? and Saskatchewan and all those other ones. Um, yeah, sure. The only thing that gives me pause is the government telling landowners what they can and can't do on their respective properties. And I'm a favor of hunting, and if, if and if it's hunting, but I don't like government telling people what they can and can't do. That's 
just one thing. And there's and there's the American that's way. Where, I'm not a socialist <laughs> like you, man. Yeah, and see, that's <laughs> why. Right? I guess I'm a little more yeah. further sighted. Um, <laughs> right? It does but, take but a little bit of... Uh, the American way. Yeah, that's that's the libertarian. Um, now, what if the what if the leaseholders what if the leaseholders paid an excise tax, you know, on any income they earned for leases? Oh yeah. Know, so like, now, you know, like, I was gonna, I was gonna talk, I was gonna save like some potential, like, hey, what's you know, what's a good way to maybe approach this and divvy this up? I mean, so I, I do want to wrap this up here in the next ten minutes because we could go on for a long time about this. And I would be just curious to hear, like, everybody's like, hey, like, king for a day, based off of what I kind of know, this is kind of what I wish would happen. But before we do that, let's go quickly through, um, Alex, and run us through um, why people think hunting leases are good and why people think hunting leases are bad based off of uh, some of the responses uh, there. Well, so, you know, like we talked about earlier, predominantly people think that they're they're bad. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, the access piece. They, they don't have access now. You know, land's been bound up. They don't have places to go. And, um, you know, that's bad. So people said it's interesting. They can see value in it. They can see the conservation aspect, you know, so from the good thing that people see habitat development is a good development or a good part of leasing because there's that ownership. Uh, there's, there's the dedication to land. Um, by private individuals for management, you know, or for, for wildlife management. So that's a good thing. But by and large, you know, most of the people that have, have commented on our thread here have said that it's bad because of access and their inability to get to land that is bound up in leases or the affordability of the leases when it comes down to it. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a quick summary. You know, the people that think it's good, habitat management, wildlife, you know, the, the, the stewardship of the resource, people that think it's bad, it's, it's predominantly down the access lane. Did I miss anything on that? Nope, I think you're good. So, Matt, I'd like to hear from you, king for a day um, or king for 100 years. You know, what's, what's you, what, what do you do with it? Would you ask leases? me? Sorry. Oh, Matt, there you go. Matt, you're king. Matt. You're king now. Okay. I'm king. What do I do? Like just what do you? What are, what do we do? Tell us what to do. Implement rules or what? Is there, yeah. What 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 are we going to do about hunting? Thanks for texting right in the middle of. This is why I called on you. <laughs> this is like I bet every teacher in Wymore knows exactly how I feel right now. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just don't kings own all the land? Oh God. Oh. Oh, we want just all right. You know what? We're gonna skip Matt. We're gonna go to <laughs> Hunter, 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 Hunter. You're king for a day. What do you do? Uh, just like everyone else, I'm. It's hard because I've got, you know, you get an idealist, you know, it because politics plays into this, and I don't want to bound to that. But like the socialist idea of Canada would be great, but you start thinking about people's rights in our country. I can't see it in any other way than it, it's going right now. You know, it it, it kind of is what it is. And I think, you know, being from my side of it, I think that you got to make the most of your opportunity, lease or not lease. And, you know, that's why a lot of leases, you know, get a bad rap. But, you know, for one of the leases that I'm in, you know, I plan on taking Ben for a snow goose season. So, and I plan on taking some other guys. So it's, Where's it's a, well, uh, <laughs> you, you did say you'd show up with a handful of cash. So, I mean, I, I, okay. All right. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, like, 
you know, some of those uh, hunting clubs down south, you know, they're family clubs and, you know, anybody, everybody can come, or at least that's the way it used to be. Um, and so I, I can't say that I would change anything, to be honest. <laughs> so I guess I'll... Oh, I'll add on hey, something. That's a respectable opinion. Oh, is Matt? Matt's decided what he's going to do with his lordship. Oh, uh. mm. <laughs> mute people on this. The only, the, so, only thing I, the only thing I would change. All right, the only Matt, thing go. I would change is that uh, public waters you can hunt on. So, like the Platte River, they would open it up and not be pri- Ooh, yeah. privatized. But I other like than that, that, I wouldn't change it. Hunt to yeah. the high water mark. Yeah, yeah, I like All that, right. Matt. Yeah. So I guess Nebraska kind of, and I don't know if other states do this or not, they kind of have government leases is what I would call it the equivalent of in their open fields and waters program in which the game and parks pays landowners who choose to enroll in these programs to open their land up to public hunting opportunities. So basically it's a government entity leasing, leasing the land for, I don't know, five, 10 years, however many years the landowners want it in, honestly. And the public gets to benefit from that. Yep. In Kansas, that's called a Weehaw. In Oklahoma, uh, I don't remember what we thought in Oklahoma. There wasn't enough there. of it around me um, when I lived there to, to know. <laughs> so, so, yeah. I was going to say my, my king for the day. But yeah, that oh, that's a that's a that's a government essentially like, yeah. piece, right? It's uh, like for public access. Yeah, exactly. So, so if I were king for a day, you know, on the leases, I, I I won. I like I do like the government leases as an option. You know, I think that that that's a fair trade off for landowners. Uh, the other thing I would do is is if if you're if you're leasing, then I would probably levy an excise tax on on the income made from the leases for. Um, you know, for, for to further the conservation. So just like the waterfowl stamp program, you know, like you, you got to go buy a waterfowl stamp to do it. You know, that's one of the most efficient government programs that we have and that 98% of that funds goes back into it. I would do the same with an excise tax on the lease. Um, I also think I wouldn't outlaw it completely because I do know that leasing provides, especially where I'm at, you know, out here on the Potomac, like big water. Like when you, when I say big water duck hunting, like, you know, the Potomac River is huge. The Chesapeake Bay is huge. There's blinds that leaseholders build out there that the state then, you know, puts some access restrictions on. But those would never be built otherwise. And it would be very difficult for a privateer to go out and construct one of them. So, like, in that case, leaseholding does provide access to a resource that otherwise would not, would be inaccessible, you know, or, or at least not safely accessible by the average public. And so, you know, for example, my lease I pay here it actually covers the cost of about one of the 30 blinds that I have access to. And like the guy that I lease from is not getting rich on that lease. Like he, I mean, it really is just opening access up. So I, you know, I would, I would look at the regulations for things like that and, and make that an option that was available, but otherwise I like Matt's idea. And then I, I would probably put an excise tax of some kind on the income made from leasing just uh, to further benefit the conservation efforts. Ben, it's your turn. Yeah. King now. Um, and kind of, yes, king of my socialist country. Well, the first thing I would do is I would take Perry Partain's duck hunting lease from him. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, Perry. I, I hope you're listening. I know that we got into it. 
I got into it on Facebook, but here's something that will delight you. I do, I do not think, um, excuse me, I do think that hunting leases have a pivotal role in the future of conservation um, in North America. I if if I if I could um, change things, I would obviously make the incentivization much higher, um, as Matt said, f- for landowners to enroll their their programs or sections of, of their properties um, into you know open fields and waters, walk-in hunting only areas. Um, so really incentivizing those so that it does look like a lucrative um, option to them as opposed to um, you know leasing it out. Uh, but I also very much um, feel the sentiment for not uh, – I don't personally have the, the funds right now to own a, a hunting property um, of my own that I can do whatever I want on, that I pay the taxes on, right? Um, but I do have – I could I could go lease right now. And having someplace that I could take my daughter uh, that's mine, all mine, that I can take Hunter out to if I want to and I can take my – buddies out and do some good with it um, on my own and maybe make some more hunters um, in, in, in a place that I can kind of control the odds a little bit better, um, that would be extremely important to me. Um, and so I don't want to see that go away because that takes an option away, right? Um, but yes, I, I really do think that leasing is, is a good thing. I just don't know how to stop the richer from getting richer and, and the poorer from getting poorer um, outside of regulating, um, you know, kind of as Alex had said. And um, I'd, I think you'd have to do that through certain monetization efforts with, um, you know, match funds, things like that. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just I don't want I don't want a millionaire to be able to have a million acres. <laughs> You know, I you don't know, want, I, I, you know, but I don't want to put some poor farmer out um, who could really use that $5,300. Um, I think it's it, funny it you brought that tribe, up. It takes the tribe to kind of police ourselves. And I think that, you know, that I have, I have strong feelings about regulations on things, you know, especially in wildlife. You know, we talk about tragedy of the commons, like anybody that wants to say that we shouldn't have regulations on wildlife, just go research a little bit on tragedy of the commons and that, you know, like that is something, and oh, by the way, we've got tons of history on that in the U.S. for wildlife. Go look up any number of examples of where regulations have improved stocks. I mean, duck hunting, by the way, like you're listening to a waterfowl podcast, we wouldn't be doing this today if it weren't for strict and enforced regulations, you know, look at the wild turkey, look at the blue crabs and oyster population in the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, there's tons of examples of where, you know, stern regulation has increased and maintained a population that is huntable, fishable, so on and so forth. And so, you know, I come at this from the perspective of one, history and reading about it. And two, from the, from the point of view that Increased regulations actually helps with access. It makes for a better resource and it does create hunters in the future. You know, we've got more duck hunters today than we did in 1980 because there's more ducks to be shot in more places. And that's great. And that's a good thing for us. And so, 
you know, before you get really wrapped up, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you think Ben's a socialist with his hammer and sickle flag, and you think that, you know, Alex is also crazy because he's promoting regulations, you know, I'd say that, you know, before your passionate opinions get the best of you, go read about the wildlife history in the U.S. Go listen to some podcasts like Your Mountain Podcast and some others where they talk about, you know, the stewardship of a resource and where government's done good things for it. Um, and, and then formulate your opinion on it and then balance that with the landowner's rights. And I think leasing sits somewhere in the middle of this. I'm going yeah. to, I hope, uh, I hope that my, I hope nobody took my statement as a non-statement. Um, <laughs> I just, I, along with, you know, Matt, you know, a bigger farm bill would be great. Right. Um, Depends what they're funding with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's much too nuanced here. Um, but yes, I, I wish that more, uh, landowners would participate in, um, walk-in hunting and things like that. It's just not lucrative, but I also wish more hunters would, excuse me, more landowners would either paid or unpaid right now. I don't care really at this point, participate in, uh, allowing hunters and anglers to access, um, those properties. So. Cool. Well, I think we, man, I think we've really like beat this subject up. Yeah. Let's uh, uh, let's give this over to let's give this over to to Hunter. Hunter, uh, where can what's where can we find Big Red Hunter? Yeah, if you guys are looking for some gear, got a couple hoodies, uh, a few different types of hats and uh, shirts. Go to BigRedHunters.com if you're looking for us. Just uh, everyday content about uh, anything from basic hunting tips uh check out our facebook instagram and uh youtube and, and much uh, better than that high prairie sportsman youtube channel have you seen his new profile video lame <laughs> not quite but i did get a new camera today so i look forward to videoing hopefully awesome. uh and uh we're actually i i think my trip fell through uh in that like October area. So I might be up to, to hunt with you in uh, North central there, Matt. I have to hit the sand hills. Oh, with hey, you. heck yes. Guys, you can't talk about hunting trips. With and Alex in the room. Ben's coming to my snow goose lease. So it's looking forward to that. Yeah. Heck. Oh, there you sorry. I'm, I'm just me. not, uh, I'm just not in the <laughs> Nebraska boys club. So for every, all the listeners out there, like, even though I've been a part of foul front for here now, I'm still not in the club. So, <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, you guys uh, want to wrap this up? All right. Yeah, Matt, do you have anything that you wanted to promote? Uh, check me out on High Prairie Sportsman YouTube. About it. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, you're a freaking moderator over at the Duck Gun Chronicle now. I've been. I've been that. I've got. I've got my fingers in everything. Hey. Hey, can someone moderate the foul front page? Every time I open that thing up, there's like. 40 freaking uh uh posts from like i think someone was like selling a cat tower the other day oh maybe i'm not seeing it i missed that one of one of you co-hosts aren't doing your job i i approve Um, people here and there come on now yeah yeah no you that's the easiest thing to do is approve someone into the thing but you don't check up on the content that they're pretty all right yeah all right guys um hey listen probably caused some deep heartburn with some of you um probably surprised a couple of you um and so i 
continue the discussion in the Foulfront Waterfowl uh, podcast fan page, fan group. Yeah, sure, fan group or you know listener hey, listener and, group. And if you've got listener some opinions group. you want to express that you don't want to put out in the public forum, but you want to talk with Ben or I or Matt uh, directly about, or you know Hunter maybe. Uh, Hey, message me about it. I'd be interested to hear the insights and, and experiences some folks have and, um, you know, read about it because this is all educational to us. And, you know, like, hey, here's the at the end of the day, like we are the future of waterfowling. We're the future of hunting. Like we're going to be around hopefully for a few more years. And this will inform opinions as we move forward on it. So, yeah, let us know. Keep the conversation going. Yeah. And I think the extension of this conversation, the extension of this conversation is going to be we're going to ask um, our guides ultimately good Ooh. for hunting and fishing you know ben do you remember you know we we actually, i think that's a great episode we recorded this episode i don't know if you remember that nope yeah no. <laughs> all right we're done all right we're gonna wrap this up we gotta wrap it up matt's matt's pointing at the watch matt's pointing at the watch i'm not Stick a fork in it yeah all right i mean all right closing shots go None. None for me. I'm closed. I shot my first limit of the season okay. last week. By GME. What? Ah. Oh. Hey, did anybody hear me? I shot my All first right. limit last week of the season. All right. Ben's closed. Hunter, you, anything else? You you did your you did your promo? You're good? <laughs> yep, yep. All right, cool. We're out. We'll see you next week on the foul front. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like. And we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right. Stay safe out there and we will see you next week. where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.